Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On behalf of Pastors David and Nicole Binion, thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church. Now, let's listen to today's message. share with you. The title of my sermon today is Behold Him. It's an interesting thought. When Moses prayed, show me your glory, God's response was, no man can see me and live. Then the contrast, a virgin gives birth and holds the God-child and beholds the face of God and lives. There's some contradictions in Scripture, and I don't try to understand them, but... Max Lucado wrote, probably 25 years ago, a book called God Came Near. Anybody ever read it? One. Okay, two. Uh, there was a, uh, in the foreword of the book, he had this, this, he wrote this little piece called Eyewitnesses of His Majesty. And he said this, Christianity in its purest form is nothing more than seeing Jesus. Hear, hear the thought. Christianity in its purest form is nothing more than seeing Jesus. Christian service in its purest form is nothing more than imitating him who we see. To see his majesty and to imitate him, that is the sum of Christianity. And then he tells the story. For 51 years... Bob Edens was blind. He couldn't see a thing. His world was a black hall of sounds and smells. He felt his way 
through five decades of darkness. And then he could see. A skilled surgeon performed a complicated operation. And for the first time, Bob Edens had sight. He found it overwhelming. I never would have dreamed that yellow is so yellow, he exclaimed. I don't have the words. I'm amazed by yellow. But red is my favorite color. I just can't believe red. I can see the shape of the moon. And I like nothing better than seeing a jet plane flying across the sky, leaving a vapor trail. And of course, sunrise and sunsets. And at night, I look at the stars and the sky and the flashing light. You could never know how wonderful everything is. He's right. Those of us who have lived a lifetime with vision can't know how wonderful it must be to be given sight. But Bob Edens isn't the only one who has spent a lifetime near something without seeing it. Few are the people who don't suffer from some form of blindness. Amazing, isn't it? We can live next to something for a lifetime. But unless we take time to focus on it, it doesn't become a part of our life. Unless we somehow have our blindness lifted, our world is but a black cave. Think about it. Just because someone has witnessed a thousand rainbows doesn't mean he's seen the grandeur of one. One can live near a garden and fail to focus on the splendor of the flower. A man can spend a lifetime with a woman and never pause to look into her soul. And a person can be all that goodness calls him to be and still never see the author of life. Behold him. Being honest or moral or even religious doesn't necessarily mean we will see him. No, we may see what others see in him, or we may hear what some say he said. But until we see him for ourselves, until our own sight is given, we may think we see him, having in reality seen only a hazy form in the gray semi-darkness. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? Have you caught a glimpse of his majesty? A word is placed in a receptive crevice of your heart that causes you ever so briefly to see his face. You hear a verse read in a tone you've never heard or explained in a way you've never thought 
and one more piece of the puzzle falls into place. Someone touches your painful spirit as only one sent from him can do. And there he is. Jesus, the man, the bronzed Galilean who spoke with such thunderous authority and loved with such childlike humility. The God, the one who claimed to be older than time and greater than death. Gone is the pomp of religion. Dissipated is the fog of theology. Momentarily lifted is the opaque curtain of controversy and opinion. Erased are our own blinding errors and egotism. And there he stands. Jesus. Have you seen him? Those who first did were never the same. My Lord and my God, cried Thomas. I have seen the Lord, exclaimed Mary Magdalene. We have seen his glory, declared John. Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked, rejoiced the two Emmaus-bound disciples. But Peter said it best. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. His majesty. The emperor of Judah. The soaring eagle of eternity. The noble admiral of the kingdom. All the splendor of heaven revealed in a human body. For a period ever so brief, the doors to the throne room were open. And God came near. His majesty was seen. Heaven touched the earth and as a result, earth can know heaven. An astounding tandem, a human body housed divinity. Holiness and earthliness intertwined. This is no run-of-the-mill Messiah. His story was extraordinary. He called himself divine, yet allowed a minimum-wage Roman soldier to drive a nail through his wrist. He demanded purity, yet stood for the rights of a repentant whore. He called men to march, yet refused to allow them to call him king. He sent men into all the world, yet equipped them with only bended knees and memories of a resurrected carpenter. We can't regard him simply as a good teacher. His claims are too outrageous to limit him to the company of Socrates. Are others, nor can we categorize him as one of many prophets sent to reveal eternal truths. His own claims eliminate that possibility. Then who is he? Let's try to find out. Let's take a look. Let's behold him.
Let's follow his sandal prints. Let's sit on the cold, hard floor of the cave in which he was born. Can you do that? Can you see that? Can you find yourself in that place? Let's smell the sawdust of the carpentry shop. Let's hear his sandals slap the hard trails of Galilee. Let's sigh as we touch the healed sores of the leper. Let's smile as we see his compassion with the woman at the well. Let's cringe as we hear the hissing of hell's Satan. Let's let our voices soar with the praises of the multitudes. Let's try to see him. Behold him. Has it been a while since you've seen him? If your prayers seem stale, it probably has. If your faith seems to be trembling, perhaps your vision of him has blurred. If you can't find power to face your problems, perhaps it's time to face him. One morning, something happens to a person who has witnessed his majesty. He becomes addicted. One glimpse of the king and you are consumed by a desire to see more of him and say more about him. Pew warming is no longer an option. Junk religion will no longer suffice. Sensation seeking is needless. Once you have seen his face, you will forever long to see it again. My prayer, without apology, is that the divine surgeon with a delicate surgical tool will restore your sight. That blurriness will be focused and darkness dispersed. That the Christ will emerge from a wavy figure walking out of a desert mirage to become the touchable face of a best friend. That we will lay our faces at the pierced feet and join Thomas in proclaiming my Lord and my God. And most supremely, that we will whisper the secret of the universe. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. To worship, you must behold him. You must. I remember when, when the Lord began to reveal worship in my heart as a young teenager. I remember when, when, it, when I would just start, uh, I, I, I remember finding songs that were being written. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Keep singing it and I'll tell you the story. And I would be at the keyboard and I would, Make myself behold the person of Jesus coming from the heavens 
descending into the sanctuary where I was worshiping. I would make myself see him. I understood that he inhabits my praise. And so in the process, when I worship, I create a place for him to come and sit. And so I would worship and I would behold him. I would see him in the room. Not physically, not not the, the person uh, of Jesus, but in my imagination, in my mind's eye, I could I I forced myself to see him. Can you do that? Yes, you have permission to do that. If that's what it takes to get you to worship, to be a true worshiper, you must behold him. Worship. In its purest form, is nothing more than seeing Jesus. See him. See him. How can I do that? Well, they were singing that song, and I'm reading the lyrics that I helped write, and suddenly I could see him tiny hands that hold our world. The infant, we're in December. We're in the month of December where we celebrate his coming. Behold him. Worship is our life. It's our oxygen. So I I want to take you somewhere now. It's going to feel like an abrupt turn when I start reading this passage of scripture. But I want you to trust me and know that it's connected. Because you have to understand uh, the detail of this story. And then I want to cause you to see maybe something you haven't seen. When I, when, I, when I was reading this story about Bob Edens, I was telling Nicole about it. And I accidentally called him Bob Evans. Only people from the north know what Bob Evans is. It's the restaurant that wish it could have been Cracker Barrel. Bob Evans. Okay, okay. D-Lo, I remember we took D-Lo to Bob Evans for the first time up in Columbus, Ohio once. We went to Rod Parsley's church and, and we were looking for a place. And just a mile from the church, there was this Bob Evans. And they're like, what is that? We're going to show you. So before I read the scripture, I have to tell you something. I, I thought it was funny. A couple of nights ago, uh, Nicole and I knew that Mitch was flying in. Mitch and Stephanie were flying in the next morning. So, uh, and our friend Susan Leahy who was here was also flying in. She was flying in to DFW, and Mitch and Stephanie were flying in to Love Field almost at the same time. And so we set our alarm for seven o'clock because we knew we had to get up and get ready and be ready for the day because we're going to have a birthday party for Carson. And so we set the alarm for seven o'clock and just could not wake up. It was so hard. And then we reset the alarm for 730 and still couldn't wake up. And then we reset the alarm again for eight o'clock and still couldn't wake up. And I had a call with the men of the church, a Zoom call, and I'm like, I got to get up and get ready. And so we, sit this, we hit the snooze button once. 
And so finally, we, we got up out of bed at 10 minutes after 8. But during those process, during that process of waking up and going back to sleep, I dreamed I was preaching at church and fell asleep at the pulpit. And the only thing I could, I could remember, really, I couldn't remember falling asleep, except suddenly I'm pulling myself up off the, off the pulpit, and I said, well, I think I fell asleep. And you all started laughing at me. And I was wearing my pajamas. And my notes fell off the pulpit, and so I'm reaching down to pick them up, and I get up, and my shirt is kind of pulled up over my stomach, and I'm like, oh, my God, everybody can see my stomach. Uh, and then last night, I dreamed we were in our new building. And the place was packed, and there were two doors over here. And we had to take that wall down, and there was conflict. We thought about tearing the wall down because the lobby was full of people. Couldn't get in the room. I like that dream. I, can you see it? Can you see it? Can you behold him in the journey that he has us on and the things we'll accomplish and the people that will come to behold him okay hard turn sharp turn Job the first chapter Several verses here. I'm going to read the message translation, this account of Job. Job was a man who lived in us. He was honest inside and out, a man of his word, who was totally devoted to God and hated evil with a passion. He had seven sons and three daughters. He was also very wealthy, 7,000 head of sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, It's a lot of animals. 500 donkeys and a huge staff of servants, the most influential man in all the East. His sons used to take turns hosting parties in their homes, always inviting their three sisters to to join them in their merrymaking. When the parties were over, Job would get up early in the morning and sacrifice a burnt offering for each of his children, thinking maybe one of them sinned by defying God inwardly. Job made a habit of this sacrificial atonement just in case they sinned. Interesting, this passage of scripture on the day we dedicate babies, the things parents do just in case. One day when the angels came to report to God, Satan, who was in the designated, who was the designated accuser, came along with them. God singled out Satan and said, what have you been up to? I think there was a little bite in his question. Satan answered God, going here and there, checking things out on earth. Satan retorted, so do you think Job does all that out of the sheer goodness of his heart? Why, no one ever had it so good. You pamper him like a pet. Make sure nothing bad ever happens to him or his family or his possessions. Bless everything everything he does. He can't lose. 
Sometime later, while Job's children were having one of their parties at the home of the oldest son, a messenger came to Job and said, did this read in the right context? I'm just going to keep reading. Sometimes when I copy and paste, my iPad messes up. The oxen were plowing and the donkeys grazing in the field next to us when the Sabaeans attacked. They stole the animals and killed the field hands. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. While he was still talking, another messenger arrived and said, your children were having a party at the home of the oldest brother when a tornado swept in off the desert and struck the house. It collapsed on the young people and they died. I'm the only one to get out alive and tell you what happened. God said to Satan, have you noticed my friend Job? There's no one quite like him, honest and true to his word, totally devoted to God and hating evil. But what do you think would happen if you reached down and took away everything that is his? He'd curse you right to your face. That's what God replied. We'll see. Go ahead. Do what you want with all that is his. Just don't hurt him. Then Satan left the presence of God. And then that's when all that stuff happened. I don't know how my copy and paste is off. Remember on Martin, he used to say, dang it, Gina. I was going to say that, but it would be inappropriate, so I'm just going to think it. All of the bolts of lightning struck the sheep, the herds, and fried them, burned them to a crisp. I jumped ahead. I'm the only one to get out. All of this has happened. And Job got to his feet. This is verse 21. Ripped his robe, shaved his head, then fell to the ground and worshipped. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I'll return to the womb of the earth. God gives, God takes. God's name be ever blessed. I I, I think it's best understood on this particular verse that I want you to see for what I want to share with you today. And I'm going to look at the same passage in the New King James Version, Job 1, starting with verse 9. So Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Have you considered my servant Job? Yes, I've considered him, but he's got a hedge around him. The calamity strikes. He loses his children, his animals. The wealthiest man becomes uh, an embarrassment. His three friends come and see the state he's in. And really become his accusers. Job 42, starting with verse 7, says this. After God had finished. Now, this is, they've gone through this whole process. The three friends were making all of their accusations, their judgments. And then one young man got up and began to declare the word of the Lord and put 
Job in his place, and then God speaks. After God had finished addressing Job, he turned to Eliphaz, the Temanite, and said, I've had it with you and your two friends. I'm fed up. You haven't been honest either with me or about me, nor the way my friend Job has. So here's what you must do. Take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my friend Job. Sacrifice a burnt offering on your own behalf. My friend Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer. He will ask me not to treat you as you deserve. After Job had interceded for his friends, friends, God restored his fortune and then doubled it. All his brothers and sisters and friends came to his house and celebrated. They told him how sorry they were and consoled him for all the trouble God had brought him. Each of them brought generous housewarming gifts. In the last verse, God blessed Job's life. It was greater than it was before. It was an incredible restoration. But I wanted to read you the beginning and the end. I'm not really certain how long this process took. But I want you to to, uh, realize the first thing Satan did to destroy Job's life was to take away his ability to worship. Destroyed all of those animals. That was the currency by which they came to the Lord. You never came to worship without bringing currency. And in those days, it was the sacrificial shedding of blood of animals before God would accept you. Remember, he said he would even, just in case his kids sinned, he would sacrifice every time they gathered and had a party. But the first thing that happened to destroy Job was to remove the hedge. And the way the hedge came down is worship was stopped. He silenced worship. He silenced his ability to worship. I just want to tell you what's going on globally right now. You can make it about politics. You can make it about anything you want to make it about. But ultimately, it is, it is a demonic strategy to silence worship and lower the hedge that protects God's people. You say, well, I can worship at home. Well, of course you can worship at home, but most likely, most likely you're going to watch service online and you're going to be touched. You're mostly just going to observe because you're not going to lift your hands and, and make loud noises because the family's watching. You're not going to worship at home like you worship when you gather with God's people. It's just easier. It's just easier. Well, I understand, but there's, it's dangerous. Of course it's dangerous. Anything ever done for the kingdom has taken, it's about taking risk. Every missionary took risk going into countries where disease was rampant. And I, listen, I understand there are people that have situations, they have delicate immunities and they really must stay home. I had a friend of mine from Nashville. He's been here, Lyle Phillips. 
posted something this week, and he said, I have a problem with people that go everywhere except church. I just want you to understand that I'm all about obeying the laws of the land. I'm all about, I've got my mask in my pocket. I put it on when this is over. I've hugged some of you without my mask, but I'm all about, I put it on every time I go to the store and I have to go to buy groceries. I have to do different things. I had to go to the airport. Uh, There are things that we have to do. So I understand, but there are some people that are, uh, I'm meddling, Lyle got, attacked on social media for making this statement. Massacred by words from people for someone defending the church. Understand that this is not about All of those issues. This is not about the pandemic. This is a demonic strategy to silence your voice. Don't stop your worship. If you have to stay home, be bold. Rise up with your family. Lift your hands and worship with your sons and daughters. Don't let the enemy silence your worship and bring down the hedge that should be surrounding the church of the living God. Open up your mouth wherever you are. Allow worship to rise in your home. Now, I preach all the time that worship is not just what you do on Sunday. You must worship privately. But the truth is, many of us don't. Thinking about it, thinking about the Lord, I mean, that's great. It'll cause you to get on the right path. But all of you, if you, all you ever do is keep it inside your head, it's not worship. You have to open up your mouth. Make declarations in your home. I will tell you, I walk around my house when my kids aren't even there and I declare the promises of God over their life. I say it out loud with my mouth. But if, we, if we're not careful, we'll allow the spirit of fear to grip us and hold us back. I'm not challenging anybody with, with physical limitations to get up and come to church. And uh, we're believing that God is going to do uh, an incredible thing. And this, uh, this COVID, this pandemic will be erased in the name of Jesus. And the church will be able to rise back up. But I just want you to understand that I believe... That this is an effort, a demonic effort, to stop and silence the voice of the church. Behold him. Have you seen him? Have you seen him? There's a day coming when every eye will see Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Every eye 
Every, everyone say, every eye. We'll see him. Dottie Rambo wrote a song, a lyric that's extraordinary. I'm going to quote it. This is about that coming day. The sky shall unfold, preparing his entrance. The stars shall applaud him with thunders of praise. The light in his eyes will enhance those awaiting, and we shall behold him. Then, face to face. The angel will sound the shout of his coming. The sleeping shall rise from their slumbering place. And those who remain will be changed in a moment. We shall behold him. Then face to face. But we don't have to wait to see him. You can look in the eyes of the person next to you and see Jesus. I have another lyric. I used to think how wonderful to have been here on the earth. When Jesus Christ, the son of God, was born of human birth. But nothing could exceed the view. Of seeing Jesus born in you. I'll never long for yesterday again. I see Jesus in your eyes and it makes me love you. I feel Jesus in your touch and I know he cares. I hear Jesus in your voice and I know he listens. And I trust you with my love because you're his. I see him in you. Have you seen him? Can you see him in the beauty of the sunrise? Oh, but all of this is going on. When is this going to be over? Behold him. Behold him. What about this racial conflict in the earth? Behold him. See him as you worship. Discipline your mind to see the person of Jesus coming, inhabiting, sitting down in our praise. Sometimes our only proof is the goosebumps we feel, but his presence is more than a goosebump. Behold him. Behold him in the power of the signs and wonders that break out among us. Behold him in the blind eyes opening. Behold him in the crippled walking. Behold him in the demise of a virus in the earth. Behold him. See the power of God. Raise the hedge up and protect the people because they are people of worship. Behold him. See him. Those that ever see him will be forever changed. Thank you for joining us today at the Dwell Church Podcast. For more information about Dwell Church, visit us at dwell.church.